Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Shari Plonsky. Shari is Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Her work, which is anchored in the political terrain of Palestine and the Israeli state, focuses on the materiality and mobility of colonial relations and the struggles that reveal and challenge them. She also co-produces the podcast series Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes, and she loves to tell stories. The current one she's working on is about a train. And I'm really delighted that we have Shari here, and I can't wait to hear more about the train. Shari, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you, Simon, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I've been reading your work for a long time. I love it. It's fascinating. It's intellectually rich. It's empirically provocative and challenging. All the things that, that good scholarship should be. So I'm really delighted to be sitting with you and talking it all through today. Well, thank you. It's, I'm now embarrassed because that was very complimentary, but thank you. I'm really, I'm really happy to have you be here. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure, and I mean every word of it. So, Sherry, let's start at the, at the beginning. What was it that got you interested in, in pursuing these types of questions and going down the academic route? So my academic route is not as straightforward as I think most people have in the UK, uh, where people here, I think, go from undergrad into a master's, into a PhD, and kind of know that this is a career path they're taking. Whereas for me, I guess I lived a lot of life before deciding to do a PhD in my 30s. And I'm now (laughs) reaching towards, scary sound, 50s. Um, (laughs) But but no, so I... uh, I think after, oh, it's going to sound long. So after doing, uh, starting a master's degree in um, international development and comparative education, um, I went to do a piece of research um, in Palestine and uh, doing kind of work on social movements and, so, and ways that social movements are pedagogical uh, spaces, spaces of practice, places that you learn to be political activists mm-hmm. as much as, spaces where you just get involved. And that kind of led me to, um, soon after finishing my master's, living in East Jerusalem for four years, working with a human rights organization there, and increasingly developing a really strong um, political commitment to, you know, to Palestine, to Palestinian liberation, to kind of anti-Zionist politics. Um, and that led me to a PhD at SOAS, which, as most people here know, is one of the most amazing places to both on one hand learn how to be a critical scholar and on the other hand learn how to kind of think about radical possibilities. Um, and from there, you know, I wrote uh, my PhD on Palestinian struggles within um, the Green Line, looking at Palestinian communities and their struggles for space and land and how that produced um, the kinds of borderlines and border spaces that we tend to miss when we're only looking from the lens of the state or the lens of power and instead start thinking from like kind of the idea that struggle produces lines in the sand and resistance kind of reveals the power of the state, but also pushes back against the state and pushes back against systems of power. Um, And that, I guess, increasingly pushed me also to start looking at other ways of thinking about borders and borderlines and the kinds of infrastructures that... um, that kind of underwrite different kinds of colonial relationships. And again, thinking about how struggle reveals some of those invisible ways that infrastructure makes colonial systems work. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then I ended up finding a train that nobody was looking at, that nobody was interested in and thought, why isn't anybody interested in it? Um, and started to ask questions about what kinds of violence gets hidden into like in big globally scaled yet nationally bounded infrastructural projects and started looking at the logistics of the Israeli state and its kind of ability and you know its frightening kind of ability to latch itself onto global global infrastructural systems, trade systems, transit systems, and how that works to help erase, further erase Palestine. Amazing. There's so much in there that I want to pick up on, so much <laughs> that I want to discuss. Um, but before we get to, to some of those those things and these ideas, you mentioned you lived a number of lives. Is it possible to ask about some of those lives, Sherry? Are you, uh, are you okay sharing a little bit of, of those lives? Um, yeah, no, of course. If, once I've already said how old I am, I think I can share anything now. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I don't actually have good like boundaries. You can tell me when not to share things, but um, yeah. So I'm. I was born in um, Montreal, Canada, but I'm born to um, to Israeli parents. Parents that were born in Tel Aviv and left in 1967. You know, to go live in in Canada and live kind of differently and separate lives from from the Israeli state, and somehow. Slowly, slowly over a lifetime got pulled towards like the politics of Palestine, the politics, the politics of what Zionism means and tries to be, I guess. And then understanding how much I wasn't raised to understand it, I guess. Yeah. And that was kind of the first thread that pulled me to study Palestine is to understand that I, that I was my whole life living in a bubble until my, you know, mid twenties. Um, I had never heard of the Nakba, which is like the essential kind of both in, you know, individual event and long-term structural, you know, colonial removal of Palestine. And Mm -hmm. it had never been part of my lexicon. And so slowly over the years, just that was probably the life thread that pulled me back to Palestine as I like got involved with different movements during, in particular during my master's degree with a a group of feminists and activists who were involved in Palestine. That's gotcha. one life. Can I ask you, just on that life, oh, Sherry, how did you get pulled back to it then? I mean, you've, you've got this, this huge sort of geographical distance and you've got this sort of this socialization of a particular worldview. And yet you're, you're saying that you're pulled into questions of, of Palestine and, and critically reflecting on the Nakba and other experiences. What, what were those things that pulled you to it? Do you know? Um, yeah, uh, I think I know, um, a big part of, well, so there's a few things. There's the fact that, you know, if, if I'm really in chair mode, my, um, when I was young, um, my dad left and moved back to, um, back to living in Tel Aviv, which kind of started a bit of a fracture in like my ordinary life. I was like eight, nine and all of this things change and I would start to go back and see him at least once a year. And that started, I think, returning connection. But then what really happened is during my master's degree, um, I was super lucky to be in a classroom with some of the most incredible scholars and activists you've ever met, like a group of incredible, you know, incredible, like an incredible group of, I think, mostly women, 
who who were all pushing at what it means to be feminist scholars in like we're talking the early 2000s um and i just learned from them to start opening my my eyes you know to yeah, start sure. listening and thinking differently and a big part of that too is getting to read people like bell hook you know or audrey lord who are telling you how to kind of pay attention to these intersections of race class um and feminist scholarship and trying to think against what we kind of thought of as i guess um I don't know, against what we what we might call now like kind of liberal thinking, where you think you're being progressive, but actually you miss everything because you haven't thought about all the different ways that the world operates against people of color, against people of different classes, against women, against uh, those who identify as trans, against, you know, like all of those different ways of asking questions that pushed against your normative kind of thinking. And and some of them were already involved in issues around Palestine, and that sent me to do my piece of research with these social movement organizations in 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 Palestine. And, I, and suddenly, you know, you start to really push it yourself to ask deeper questions that are like, you know, it's not enough to say we want, you know, the occupation to end, but ask yourself, how, how does the occupation come into being? What are the systems and structures, both locally, nationally, and internationally, that enable them? And what does it mean to have a Jewish state that, that enables such a thing to happen? And the more threads I pulled, the more I started to really question, you know, the legitimacy of Zionism, the legitimacy of my childhood upbringing, legitimacy of 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 a of a colonial situation that's ongoing in the present, and then you know the content of that meant, you know, being anti-Zionist, being anti-racist in the same breath, mm-hmm. and being in support of Palestine. That sounds deeply existential in terms of everything that you're <laughs> then undoing and unlearning and challenging. Um, yeah, I guess I guess it is and was. Um, and it's made it, yeah, I guess it's made it a big part of what I'm doing in my, I guess, in my writing. And I guess also in the way I commit to, um, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement in the present. Like, I, I actually think it's really important that as we write, as we teach in the classroom, you know, we need to come that with our political commitments and so for me all of that is I guess infused into each other I can't write about colonialism without talking about liberation in Palestine I can't write about write or think about the liberation of Palestine without doing some kind of political activism in support of that sure okay well let's let's go deeper into your work if that's okay please but before we we get into the nitty-gritty can you just define for us or give us a definition of anti-zionism please for people who aren't familiar with the term, what do you understand by it? Well, um, I guess anti-Zionism, to, to, I don't know if I have an official, there are official, I guess, definitions. Um, but I guess for me, an anti-Zionism is an anti-racist politics where you believe that the state of, is, I, like, Oh, I have to think about how to really define this. Where you believe, I guess, that the the fundamental principles that co- that created a Jewish state in Palestine are inherently racist um, and built on the idea of like kind of a nationalist, ethno-nationalist, and mm-hmm. colonial project. That I guess Zionism became fundamentally a colonial project the second it 
moved out of Europe and, and kind of embedded itself um, on top of indigenous groups in Palestine and then rewrote the national structures of that place. So anti-Zionism to me is, you know, anti those, you know, systems of Jewish supremacy that persist and make up the Israeli state. Sure. I hope that sounds like a yeah. definition. No, that, that's really great. Thank you. Because I think one of the the misconceptions around debate in, on Zionism is that it's this one monolithic thing. And because it's not, then there are all these different different types of responses, different types of positions that are taken um, in the anti-Zionist movement, the post-Zionist movements, for example. So I think having that 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 working definition from you is, is really helpful, Shari. And from that then, you've got this, this sort of personal and political commitment to an anti-racist project here. But then having experienced everything that you did during your master's course and engaging with these wonderful feminist scholars and activists, you could have gone down the, the PhD route in a lot of different ways. What was it about infrastructure, space and borders that, that really spoke to you above above other aspects that made you think, this is what I feel a sort of a burning desire to work on? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, and it's funny, you make it sound like there was some kind of overarching big brother kind of journey that, you know, <laughs> what, there's no grand the, plan. <laughs> there was no grand <laughs> plan, but what, there was a spark though. And I guess that is something we tell, you know, incoming PhD students is that if there's some, it's even something that would go all the way back to like dissertation students that we say, like find your burning curiosities, your questions. What are the things that you really want to look at in these deeper ways? And for me, it started with, so when I was, writing, I guess, or doing a bit of research for this master's program, because in those days we actually did, you know, proper pieces of research for a dissertation. Um, you know, like I was there for, for five months. Um, side note, it's also when I met my husband. So there's that whole thing. <laughs> um, another story to explore. Maybe another Another time. story in another life. Um, but, the, but basically when I... Uh, was doing that work, I, I met some of the most amazing activists on the ground, uh, Palestinians who have um, citizenship within Israel, but are Palestinian in terms of their, um, in terms of their political and, and in, in, internalized political identity, I guess is the way to put it. Um, you know, uh, despite the fact that the Israeli state tries to erase even that rooted Palestinian identity that these citizens of Israel have. Um, and I think within all the literature about uh, Palestinians who have Israeli citizenship, aside from like, you'll hear like a blanket Satan of, well, 21% of the state are Palestinian or, you know, but that they're often hidden or invisible and like, or you'll hear kind of stories of victimization or you'll hear stories of like, of containment and extreme vulnerability. And that isn't what I encountered. It is true also like systematically trying to erase this identity or like the structures of the Israeli state attempt to contain and really violate the lives of these people. But what I encountered as well was incredible power and 
you know, organizing collectives and just the most amazing communities of activists. And I knew that if I was going to write a PhD one day, that these were the groups I wanted to engage with and the stories I wanted to kind of further unravel. And um, and it didn't happen right away. I finished that master's degree and then moved back to, and then moved, ended up moving to Jerusalem for another four years where I worked in this human rights organization um, and learned more and more about, you know, the politics of the state and how things operate. But before finally deciding to move to London with my very small child and husband and starting a PhD at SOAS. So it wasn't a straight journey at all. Um, and then during my PhD, the more the more I learned and the more I was at, I think also it helped being at SOAS where and being guided by, you know, Lala Khalili and Jobel uh, Ashkal, who kind of pushed me to ask these really big, wider questions about settler colonialism, about how land operates as part of that project. And then through investigating struggles around space and land, I accidentally, in a way, started to engage with the question of the borders and what borderlands, border border zones, borderscapes kind of look like through the lens of struggle and through the mm. stories of these amazing people. And it seems like such an important yeah. thing to think about in the context of of um, the Palestinian question, this idea of borders and the regulation of, of mm. those borders, which reveals so much about the way in which power, sovereign power, operates and the Israeli state operates and tries to control those borders and control that land, those spaces. Um, yeah, and also, but also, like, it kind of gets you to turn on your on its head that borders don't operate as some kind of top-down disciplining practice, or at least not exclusively, sure, that no. there's always an encounter. And one of the things about looking at this through the lens of struggle, through understanding settler colonialism, is that if it's up to that system of... Of, of colonial power, there would be no border. There just would be no Palestine, right? Like, mm-hmm. so the fact that Palestine is present and ongoing and, 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 and not disappearing and doesn't get pacified and doesn't just kind of stop is because of those modes of resistance and has, and not because the state is somehow letting it happen. This is about like incredible pushback. Um, and 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 c- continuous resistance and struggle and disruption to a project that attempted to um, fracture you and and remove any race and transfer and so on um, and that's why we also see movements like the unity movement the the the, the unity intifada of May twenty twenty one the current kind of pushback against incredible violence in the West Bank you know these are Palestinians that don't that refuse to be pacified that refuse to stop pushing back. Um, but then also, like, I should say that the way I got into this questions of infrastructure, to come back to your point about these larger questions about sovereignty and about how global, I guess, like, global and regional things work, is that one of the problems I think I encountered in myself is that if you kind of do, I guess, um, any work on, on a local site, you get pulled into only looking at the local and you stop looking up at how, how this place connects to multiple, you know, scales of, of sovereignty making of, um, capitalism, of colonialism, of, you know, like all these, or even other kinds of struggles. And, and so when I finished my PhD, I was lucky enough to work very like 
weirdly randomly on a project with um, Jonathan Goodhand, Professor Jonathan Goodhand at SOAS, who was looking at borderlands and brokers in Sri Lanka and Nepal. And he was interested in the fact that I was coming from a Middle East background and could like bring some of that literature in. And what he did for me or what that project did for me, and I worked with awesome people on that project, uh, was kind of get me to look up and understand that like different kinds of infrastructural circuits that are hap- like that are reframing how how geoeconomics are working in like South Asia actually had really similar kind of mirroring practices to what was happening in Palestine. It just forced me to really reshape how I understand what's happening on the ground and try to look at these larger kind of offshore projects, these scales of global capitalism and how they're encountering Palestine and vice versa and how is the Israeli state is, is using those kinds of larger circuits to, to kind of do its work on the ground. It's fascinating. It's, yeah, it, it makes perfect yeah. sense. And I think that's where um, geographers and political geographers and thinking of, of someone like Doreen Massey, whose work looks at that interplay between the global and the local and the, the ways in which they interact and constantly produce and reproduce shape and reshape space is so important rather than just looking at it in a static um, sort of monolithic way right and that's what I've, I've really taken out of your work this um this broader sort of reproduction and interplay between different concepts and different types of ideas yeah and i had i read during nazi and kind of had my world you know exploding <laughs> like from, I think we all from how brilliant her work is <laughs> yeah. yeah it's something that I, I said to my phd students and they are, are always um always blown away by the the ideas and how regardless of the topic regardless of what it is that they're working on um her work always speaks to people in in so many different ways it's fantastic yeah if there was anything that i wish i had been it was a political geographer <laughs> same same it's almost like it came afterwards getting to read all of this stuff that you kind of missed in the first round <laughs> but yeah it's they're like yeah, Doreen Matthew, and then also I've been kind of re-engaging with Anna Singh's work and her stuff on friction, but also on scale, um, which I just yeah, which I think is is just kind of again like tries to get you to rethink how how we actually in so many ways think of the global and hegemonic terms, you know, and mm-hmm. like. But what we should be doing is kind of breaking that up as much as we break up the local, as much as we get into the detail of of the everyday. We need to also be thinking about global and everyday terms and in, in like more granular ways to be able to understand what are these larger systems and how do we how do we get at them? How do we understand what they're doing and why so that we can kind of produce also like these different kinds of global scales of resistance that, you know, that I think should be possible or hopefully are possible in a kind of different radically imagined future. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to touch on the the work you've been doing with, with your new uh, ESRC project, if that's okay, please. This idea Mm -hmm. of um, Israel's normalization project. And one of the things that, that um, I was really curious about is again, this link between the regional dynamics and the local and how the broader sort of projection of Israeli influence 
on regional affairs plays out locally and, and vice versa. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you're doing um, with that, please, Shari. And then we can talk about your train. I've not forgotten <laughs> the story of the train. Well, they're, they're very much in- integrated. Exactly, um, yeah. And actually, I'm going to reverse it and tell you a bit about the train so that we can kind of anchor sure. this wider set of questions about normalization. Um, and I would also say, like, it's not so much about Israeli influence, but, like, I think there's global and regional and national interests um, in cultivating Israel as this kind of secure, safe, regional, I guess, interlocutor for, you know, the rest of, for the rest of the world, and that it has a mirror partner in, you know, in, in the Gulf, in, in the UAE in particular, but mm-hmm. like, you know, that kind of region. And I think that has a lot to do with like, with kind of financial circuits and markets and how these two sites are kind of fitting into kind of a global a global marketplace or a global geoeconomic kind of vision for how the world operates. But I think all of that also has like deeply historical, very much, you know, racial capitalist kind of histories, colonial histories, right? Like that, that Israel, Israel's um, population is seen as European enough, you know, modern, more modern or more secure, less disruptive than other parts of the region that have, you know, historically, these were like the sites of deeply anti-colonial projects, but even that was racialized as, you know, insecure, unruly populations that you can't govern. And so you need these kind of stations within within these regions to make the place workable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of where my thinking around the project is. But in terms of like why I want to come back to the train is like... I started in 2016 kind of being curious about this re-inauguration of something called the Hemic Railway. And it's just like no train to nowhere. It goes 65 kilometers. I know you've heard me tell this story. Like it's 65 kilometers long. (laughs) And it goes from, you know, basically the, the, the kind of the Mediterranean and these three stops, um, around Haifa, um, and it goes across the ga- the central Galilee until about four kilometers shy of the Jordanian border in a place called Bechan. This is like an intentional geographic backwater. Israel has intentionally underdeveloped this region um, in part, in large part because the population that live there are actually traditionally Palestinians for all the concentrations of Palestinian communities that were that kind of that were able to remain after 1948 stayed. Um, there's a bunch of kind of what they call peripheral or development towns that, that kind of acted as settlements of Jew- concentrated Jewish areas. But again, many of them were from uh, Middle East backgrounds. And that's a longer story, but Israel basically kept this area unconnected and undeveloped. And when it put back this train line in 2016, it did a bunch of really weird things. One, it said like it was connecting these peripheral communities to give them like a better access. But the larger story was that it called it this kind of potential driver of peace in the region and would become a train to everywhere. And even that, like, again, jarring, like crazy one, it doesn't actually get 
to the Jordanian border, even to anything on the other side, aside from the fact that it, that there was nothing on the other side. Back then, there was kind of a train running, but the gauges were different. So it's like with that, they didn't even connect. These days, there is a train there, and there is definitely no political will to make this train somehow logistically linked from the Mediterranean onwards to the region. Aside from the fact that back in 2016, Israel's only economic or diplomatic partners were George Egypt, and even that we consider these kind of cold relationships, and there was nothing beyond. And yet, this 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 conversation kept circulating that this is what's going to happen, and that they dreamed of this also as having this link to the Hijazi railway, which traveled from Haifa to Dara and down through Oman and over to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and so on. And again, like it was this like weirdly truncated version of that. It didn't go anywhere near that train. Um, and so I kept asking like, what's going on? And so I call this like working through the making of a corridor, literally watching it happen in real time as slowly, slowly different projects in the region seem to be reaching back towards connecting to this train. Whether we're talking about, you know, the 2020 Accords, but even before that, the Israeli transport minister and then later the finance minister, this guy Israel Kapp, um, you know, was running around to every um every um Gulf state saying this is gonna be this tax for regional peace project, this is gonna be the train to everywhere, we're gonna connect the Gulf to the Mediterranean, just wait and see. And then there was, you know, Trump's crazy peace plan, which also, this peace prosperity plan, which also pointed at this train that's going to somehow link, you know, the, the Mediterranean to the Gulf. Mm -hmm. And then you have more recently the 2020 Accords, and then you have after that, you know, I was recently in Jordan talking with, you know, people involved with train and, and logistics infrastructures, also pointing at the fact that there is a desire to see that connection happen, and they are almost like the last Link, And then you have even just a few weeks ago, uh, Saudi Arabia announcing this huge infrastructural commitment to linking the rest of its railway projects up to the border with Jordan, up to where these new kind of customs gateways are happening just outside of Amman. And it's just amazing to watch this slowly come into being. But then at the same time, in the same breath, that continued violence in Palestine, continued just, you know, increasing like presence of a, you know, this insanely racist government coming into power, which to be fair, this government, as far as Palestine is concerned, is not necessarily any worse, just more blatant than mm. others, I suppose. So. And it doesn't seem to stop the fact that even just today, Bahrain is announcing more political and economic commitments to Israel. And so what I'm seeing is just this, I don't know, this constant growing piece of metal that underneath is just allowing for this reimagination of Israel as a normal partner of the Middle East and with so many global and regional interests saying that that's okay. And I guess my project has become to show how that growing connection is tied to the kind of violence that people do react to, those spectacles of violence that we do have a reaction to elsewhere beyond this, these trade and transit infrastructures. Sorry, that was a long story. But it was a good one. 
Stories are really important, and I think this is a really, really important and fascinating story that that needs to be explored more, told more, and 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 heard more. And that brings us to a, a nice segue to the final question of this discussion, if I may. And um, we've been talking for a while, but I, I want to just pick up on something that you you mentioned on your website, on your um, on your Queen Mary webpage. And that pertains to um, podcasting and academic articles and this observation that you've made that academic articles aren't the best way to tell a story. And I don't think you'll find many people who disagree with you on that, but I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what you mean by that, Sherry, and, and what, what do you think the best way to, to tell these stories is? Um, uh, well, so... Actually, since writing that, I've also thought that, like, why can't we make academic articles more storytelling in their approach? Because I think more people would enjoy them. <laughs> um, but in terms of a better way to tell stories, uh, like, it's it's more that I wish that we would allow ourselves to tell stories a little differently. That not everything needs to be written in this formulaic way that we can sure. stop and kind of let ourselves travel with interlocutors, let them lead how we kind of take us through different detective bends and threads and, and, and let the story play out in a way that feels more like you're, I don't know, in a, in a, in a suspense novel, you know, but I just, I guess like for me, what's becoming clear is that I love these other creative ways to explore and talk about our research. And so I've been doing these kind of um, narrative podcasts, which is a little bit different from, let's say, what you and I are doing right this moment. It's more like getting to tell a true crime styled story around different pieces of infrastructure because infrastructure is so good at being invisible and hiding kind of histories of violence. You do need a bit of a detective to pull at all the different kind of red threads that tell you where their crimes are, what they've done, who was hurt through the experience of making certain types of infrastructure and the kinds of struggles that, that make it more visible and that show you who's been harmed or impacted and kind of trying to seek justice around pieces of infrastructure. Um, and it's just really made me realize how, how much, one, how much fun it is to do that kind of creative project Two, that they require so much collaboration that you can't tell a story by yourself, you know, whereas academic articles feel like these kind of hoarding individual lonely experiences. And as much as I enjoy writing, um, I don't enjoy the loneliness. And yeah. I just, I really love working with super creative, talented people who get you to see things differently, make your writing better, make your thinking better, change the way that you share a story but also like make sure that the voices of the people that you're writing I guess about aren't you know it isn't just for you it's it's the work that they want to talk about it's the experiences that they have it's uh, you know and that gives you another way of like including their stories yeah and that's so fascinating and so important that um, there are these alternative ways that can be so much more powerful and this dare I say it so much more fun for us <laughs> that sounds a little bit wrong to say, but I think you're right. It is it's more fun not. to do these types it's, of things. Yeah. Well, you just, you know, like, one, I think that, like, let's bring fun back into what we do. Like, I think, one, I, I think we have a problem that we all take ourselves a little too seriously. <laughs> you know, like, 
and we take and our work is serious, but our work doesn't have to be that kind of deadening, stressful experience where people no longer have the energy for the politics of what we do. And like, and to get that energy back, I think we need to be having more fun. It's something I try, like I teach a, I started a second year methods course um, with my second, like my second year undergraduate students. And a lot of my colleagues were like, why the hell would you want to teach methods to second year students? Like this, what are you doing? This is going to be so boring. And I was like, no, 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 it's going to be amazingly fun. And the first thing I tell my students is that the whole reason I wanted to create this class was let's have fun. Let's be creative. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be generative. Let's, let's unlearn, you know, what it means to be academic, what it means to do research. Yeah. And we had so much fun and we did do things like try to tell stories, take photographs, go on walking tours, map our memories, like, and read some of the most incredible stuff about like silences in the archives. And, you know, we read Cynthia Hartman and Hazel Carby. Like we just had a really good time together. And I think that one, that collaborative thing is part of that. Mm -hmm. And I think telling stories can just, yeah, it can really change how we feel about what we're engaged with, I guess. Amazing. And what an uplifting and exciting note to end on. So, Shari, thank you so much for sharing your story, your observations, your reflections and your your call to have fun. I think that's such a good way to end. So thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Simon. It was really nice to chat. A huge thank you to Shari for her time just now. You can find her on Twitter at Shari Plonsky. That's at Shari Plonsky. Do give her a follow. And thank you to you for listening, as always. It's a real pleasure. Do please like, comment, share, subscribe, etc., etc. Check out the other episodes in our series and have a look at the social theory posts that we've been putting up on the SEPAD site. That series is coming to an end, so we'll have the full report out for you in the coming weeks, I hope. But until then, do take care, stay safe. Thanks for listening. Until next time.